Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Early one morning in April of 2016, I woke up and seriously contemplated the possibility that I would never be able to generate the strength, focus, and courage to get out of bed. The combination of crippling anxiety, chronic pain, muscle atrophy, and the fascinating mix of pharmaceuticals coursing through my body had, I feared, finally broken me. Those are the words of Congressman Adam Smith, a Democrat from Washington State, on the first page of his new book, Lost and Broken. They are obviously not the usual canned remarks that you hear at a stump speech or a fundraiser. In his book, Smith recounts, in raw, visceral prose, his deeply personal story of suffering through, and eventually overcoming, debilitating mental and physical illness. We're going to talk to him today about that difficult journey and some surprising lessons it taught him about the emotional and sometimes dark overtones that are animating American politics. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. Adam Smith grew up in a working-class family that had more than its share of problems. Before establishing himself in politics, Smith held a few tough-guy jobs, such as loading UPS trucks and prosecuting domestic abuse and drunk driving cases for the city of Seattle. At the age of 25, Smith won a seat in the Washington State Senate. A few years later, in 1996, he won a seat in Congress. Today, he's the ranking Democrat on the House Armed Services Committee, where he has one big job every year helping write and pass the $850 billion defense budget. But in his new book, Smith opens up about what other members of Congress shy away from, the intense strain of the job on their private lives. I spoke to Smith early in the morning on the West Coast about his long, winding road of treatment to deal with depression and pain and the many lessons he's learned about healthcare, the pharmaceutical industry, prescription drugs, Buddhism, meditation, psychotherapy, and the mental state of extreme partisans in American politics. Finally, we also spent some time on the inside game that's happening on the Hill right now. Whether he thinks this is the year when Congress fails to pass a defense bill, the continuing fallout in the House from the debt limit deal, and whether Kevin McCarthy can rustle up enough Republican votes to avoid a government shutdown this fall. At a couple of points in the book, you sort of hint at and maybe say explicitly that this process has sort of maybe altered your understanding of politics and that a lot of the rage and issues that we see out in the the culture right now may be the result of mental health issues, undiagnosed mental health issues. I find you inching towards a little bit more of these psychological explanations for some of the uh, political problems that we're all very well aware of. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think the issue there is something I've wondered about, you know, as I've dealt with issues, people get so angry and so passionate about issues. And it's not, it's not that I don't, you know, I've been doing public policy and 
one capacity or another, gosh, probably since I was a teenager and started working on campaigns. So I've been talking to people about how they feel about an issue, but the level of anger, you know, and you see it, you know, particularly, you know, against public officials. I mean, people don't, don't just say, you know, ah, am I kind of, you took that vote. I don't really like that. Yeah, they really get personal and insulting and like, you know, and obviously, I guess, to some extent, Donald Trump is the personification of this in terms of how even early on, you know, he would aggressively belittle and insult, um, you know, Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, and people. And, it's, you know, is that anger really about the fact that they really didn't like the health care bill? Um, or might that anger be coming out of other frustrations in their lives? And that, and I think we've all been there. It's like, depending on the type, a whole lot of lo- really bad things happen in a given day. Something's going on with you. And then your spouse or your kid does something and you overreact to it. You know, you're not really just angry about that situation relationship. You've got these deep seated things inside of you that you haven't dealt with that ramps up the anger and ramps up the discord. And then you've got all the people out there who are going to make money off of that. So they take advantage of it. How many emails do you get? Are you as angry as I am? I mean, yeah. that's like the lead on a fundraising thing. And, I, yeah. and I'm always like, well, yeah, no, actually I'm not. Um, but these emails aren't just, you know, please stand up for abortion rights or whatever. It's no, you should be angry. So they feed into that because they know people will respond to it. And it's because of those underlying issues that are making you more angry and more disagreeable while it's in front of you. And that's not to say that the issues in public policy that we deal with aren't important. They are. But why does it get so angry and so, you know, in some cases, violent. You know, we've seen more and more of that in recent years. And I think it has to do with people not having a firm grasp on their own mental health in many instances. I think that's so interesting because it sort of suggests, and I don't know if there's what policies would be be behind this, but it sort of suggests more of a of you know a focus on wellness solutions for some of our political problems. And I think most politicians, if they kind of talk about that, they sound a little like you know out there. Like, what's the what's the legislation that w- that would fix that? Has you know, I, I I know you don't necessarily have all the answers to this, but has it has it changed your thinking from a public policy perspective at all? You know, outside of your, and we'll get into it, criticisms of the healthcare system and the pharmaceutical system, based on your own experiences. Is there anything that's changed your mind about you know if you had a magic wand of, of policies that could address what you're talking about here? This you know this constant you know upping the cortisol levels in everyone's uh, brains and, and activating, you know, this, this sort of fight or flight, more primitive part of the brain as the, as the essence of politics these days. Well, I would, yeah, I've always kind of thought of it th- this way. So I would say it hasn't so much changed my mind as it's enhanced that. And what I'm really focused on in this is, is the process of how we make decisions as a society. And I've always thought about this because, you know, People get angry about a particular policy, you know, the criminal justice system, what's going on with abortion, you know, the whole Donald Trump stuff, everything going back and forth. But what we don't really think as much about is what is the process of how we make decisions in this country? And my focus is always on how do we resolve our differences in a peaceful way? And part of that is you have to understand you don't always get your way. You have to respect the process. And I've long noticed that we've sort of drifted away from this. And ultimately, I mean, January 6th was the best example of this, was 
people have stopped thinking of democracy as a process whereby, you know, you participate in the system. I'm thinking uh, in de Tocqueville, I think he wrote something about, you know, the John Quincy Adams, um, uh, the first John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson race. Um, And, you know, they were talking to some of the Jackson people who were a little put out by the fact that John Quincy Adams won in 1824. But there there, there was a quote in there with the first, well, what are you going to do about it? Well, we're going to come back in the next election and we're going to make sure we win. Hmm. Okay, that's what they said. And that was a logical sort of respect for democracy way of looking at something. There was anger as well. It's like, we have a system. This is the way it worked out. And it's like, like in, a, in a football game. Well, I didn't like the call, you know, but I'm not going to physically attack the ref. Right. Okay. <laughs> These are the rules. We played by them. It didn't work out. Let's, let's play next time. Whereas today, if you don't get the result that you wanted, you're going to burn the whole house down. All right. It's just completely unacceptable. So I think I think about it in terms of process being so much more important in terms of how we govern this country than just the individual issues. You have to have a respect for the process in order to be able to peacefully resolve your differences. And we're not interested at this point in peacefully resolving our differences. We want what we want. And if we didn't get it, what we're going to do is we're going to let the world know why that is not just unfortunate, not just wrong, but completely unacceptable. All right. And that's a matter of developing emotional intelligence. All right. So let's talk a bit about what's going on on the Hill. Is this the year that the NDAA might actually not pass? Well, every year we feel that way. In fact, I can tell you, <laughs> you know, the, the four years that I was chairman, in fact, I'm remembering a conversation I had with Jack Reed in like late November, I forget which year, when I was, you know, walking around the gym when something that just happened. I was like, okay, I guess we're done. Um, if that's the decision they've made, we're not going to get there. And then, you know, 48 hours later, we figured it out. So every year, there will be multiple moments when it feels like that. But there is a distinct risk. And, and, and look, let me just make one thing perfectly clear. Mike Rogers, who's the chairman of the committee, he and I want to work together and pass a bipartisan bill. If it was up to Mike and I, we'd get it done in the blink of an eye. Well, one question I have, you, you might have thoughts about this, is, you know, like for democracy to work, you know, the, the system, do, you know, Rahm Emanuel used to have a funny line, uh, you know, he, as you you know, Rahm pretty well, and he sometimes took a dim view of his colleagues in the yeah, house. I saw him just last and, week in Japan, as a matter of fact. So, yes. Oh, okay. He was, yeah. Yeah, he was, on, the, he was on this show uh, one or two weeks ago, and he used to say something like, uh, you know, Everyone in America is represented in Congress. <laughs> you know, his way of saying, and I mean, if democracy works, you you probably have to tolerate, you know, some level of extremists that come into the system, and you know, one of the ideas is that the system itself. I don't know if this is the right word, moderates them, makes them realize, you know, some some of their previous views were not so correct. And so, you know, I wonder when you see some of these far right and sometimes far left people coming into Congress and over the course of a career, as much as you may have hated them and disagreed with them in some of the crazy things they said, Maybe is it a sign that the system is kind of working? Yeah. That, you well, know, to- that someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene starts to change, is no longer considered a a card-carrying member of the far right, becomes more interested in ascending the the ladder and staying close to powerful people like McCarthy? A couple things you got to add here. 
Marjorie Taylor Greene is absolutely still a card-carrying member of the far right. Whatever weirdness is going on within the Freedom Caucus, I, I want to make it perfectly clear that I'm not saying that. Um, but sure, I think there's, sure. there's so two things. First of all, it's absolutely true. And I, it's funny, I say a similar thing. I said Congress is reflective of the American people, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's all it's a slightly different way yeah. of saying the same thing that Rom said. The second thing I worry about, however, yep. and I, I will I will go to an office analogy here. Um, the episode where Jim and Pam are on their honeymoon and all kinds of weird stuff happens. And and at one point, Oscar looks looks in the camera and says, "The delicate balance in our office between the sane and the insane is out of whack with Jim and Pam not in the <laughs> office." And I'm just worried we're not going to be able to come back. And that's. That's kind of the way I look at it. I think you're right. There is, but 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 at what point do you tip over? Yeah. And the people right. who simply want to burn the place down. Sorry, sane and insane is the wrong way of putting it. Just you know, taken from the. Uh, I forget, yeah, well, they, I forget exactly. They don't actually get there and become you know right. firemen. They continue to be arsonists. Exactly. And 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 do we tip over that point where there's just too many arsonists? Um, too many, yeah. you know, celebrity members of Congress, too many performance artists, and not enough people who are simply trying to make the place work. And then you've got McCarthy who's going to bow to whoever he has to bow to to keep the job. That, at the end of the day, is what we're worried about. Does he let the arsonists take over? And I feel like the political analysis of this spectrum since Republicans took over the House has sort of gone back and forth, right? So the deal with Biden on the debt limits, yeah. I think a lot of us suddenly were in the, all right, he's tamed this faction. He has somehow figured out a way to make this work. And then there was a massive backlash, which may be what you're experiencing right now. And we all said, oh, wait, I guess we were wrong about that. He has not tamed this faction. And all of us writing that he's tamed this faction has probably helped create this backlash. Yeah. <laughs> because none of those guys want to be seen as, as being tamed. Um, just watching it up close the way you are, do you go back and forth on that spectrum? Or are you just convinced that this is destined to you know, swallow him up the way uh, Boehner and Paul Ryan were swallowed up. Well, I think you just perfectly described how I feel about it. Exactly. I mean, that's exactly the point. Is you know, we okay? I mean, I didn't expect that McCarthy was going to be able to get the debt deal. Now, I missed two things really. One, if we had defaulted on our debt, that would have been catastrophic for the country and for the Republican Party. And the second thing is, I underestimated McCarthy a little bit. I sort of knew that first thing, but then I thought, but he's not going to be able to negotiate. He's not going to be able to navigate his way around it. And he did. He 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 lied. <laughs> um, you know, he as I say, he must have had his fingers crossed when he made the deal with the president. Um, then he just sort of went back on it. So he proved to be a little bit more adept, if you will, as a politician than I expected. So, you know, but that tension you described is what we have going forward. And I worry a great deal, certainly on the appropriations process. I also wonder about a government shutdown. I mean, if we get to October 1, there's no real prospect for getting an appropriations deal. So we're looking at a long-term CR. Do we have the votes for a long-term CR? I mean, the only way you avoid a shutdown is if you get enough people to vote for a CR. And I think there's going to be a lot of Democrats who are going to be like, we don't support a CR. And Democrats don't want a CR because of what it does to the funding levels. Yeah. Well, because it just it makes it very difficult to, to run the discretionary portion of the federal budget. Certainly, it's devastating to defense. 
but it's also yeah. devastating to education and housing and you know the parks and everything else that's trying and transportation and everything else in the discretion and Larry budgets that's trying to function. So yeah, I think we're headed towards a crack up on October first uh, for the reasons that that you outlined. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. So this is a fascinating, very revealing, raw book, Congressman. Why'd you write it? What made you decide to dig so deep into your personal life and your struggles with mental health issues and chronic pain? Well, I, I wrote it in the first place because I am an excessively logical person. And as I went through this, you know, when the, when the anxiety, you know, came at me and I dealt with stuff before 2013, but nothing like this. Um, and then, you know, my hips went bad and chronic pain. I analyzed the hell out of the experience. Okay. I mean, I had wrote notepads. About, okay. What's going on? I saw this, you know, physical therapist. I saw that psychologist. I was going to say the recall in the book is very precise and detailed. And I was wondering about that. You know, sometimes you read a book and you think, oh, there's no way this person remembered these details, but you were taking notes about yeah. this part of your life. Yeah. Well, because I was trying to solve a problem. Okay. And that's the way I do it. I mean, when, I, when I'm trying to pass the defense bill, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, here's everything that's in here. And it's like, I got to get the votes out of committee. I got to get the votes off the floor. Here are the people I have to worry about. And then I'm trying to do this issue, you know, and I'm still a very analog person. So most of this is written down in little spiral notebooks. Um, but the level of analysis is deep because I'm trying to solve a problem. And I want to understand every single aspect of it. So I had done that. And as I went through this process, you know, it took a long time to find the right um, psychologist and to find the right, in this case, muscle activation therapist. You know, and eventually I did that. And by like mid-2019, I mean, I guess one benchmark is I finally got off all of my medication in April of 2019. And then I would say I started feeling close to okay by the end of that year. And it occurred to me that I would like to sort of have, you know, sort of as the military puts it, an after action report. Okay. What happened here? How did I get through this process? Mostly because I thought it would be useful for me because this whole thing is about figuring out how my brain and my body work. Yeah. So I wanted to go through that. And as I was writing it, basically, um, it occurred to me that there's a lot of people who go through something similar with anxiety, with depression, with chronic pain. And I felt it would be useful to tell the story uh, to help with the overall dialogue about how we as a country address these issues, either you know the broader healthcare system, first of all, and my struggles to navigate my way through it. But then specifically, what do you do about anxiety, depression, basic mental illness, and what do you do about chronic pain? I thought I could contribute to that discussion in a useful way, uh, which is why I decided to you know, try to publish the book and share it more publicly. 
I want to back up a little bit and just get into a little bit of the details of these twin issues that you write about, the, the chronic pain and the, and the crippling uh, anxiety. And there's a lot that's in those two baskets. And just to give listeners a, a flavor of the book, just to, you know, the, the first line I think really sets the tone. You write, I woke up one morning in early April of 2016 and seriously considered the possibility that I might never be able to get out of bed. Could I ever find the strength, courage, and focus to just get up? Crippling anxiety, chronic pain, muscle atrophy, and an increasingly confusing mix of pharmaceuticals coursing through my body had brought me to this point of doubt. I felt broken and pathetic. I read that because it's such a, um, you know, you're really grabbing the reader, especially, you know, especially readers who come to political books or books by politicians and, you know, don't expect that sort of visceral, personal, confessional tone that this book is written with. And let, let's just unpack the history of those two issues a little bit, Congressman, uh, so we can help understand this, you know, this journey and, and, and what you learned which one do you, which would you, do you want to start with the, the- The anxiety is sort of where I think that the best place to start, because this is something I, I struggle to explain to people. It came on suddenly one time, one, yeah. one time in your life, right? In 2000, what, six? Uh, 2005 was the first time. And look, I, throughout my life, I've been a high stress person. Okay. And I, I describe that when, when I'm, and I've done some high pressure things, you know, campaigning, politics and all of that. And most of the time, the way I dealt with it is I stressed my way through it. Okay. It was like, all right, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to sleep four or five hours a night and I'm going to, you know, and you know, I mean, it probably wasn't the most mentally healthy way to approach it, uh, but I got through it. And, and the thing about that was when the specific source of the stress wasn't there, I calmed down. Okay. Even like during the course of a campaign, you know, I'd, I'd have days when it wouldn't really have me that high stress. So that was my life. Uh, now, weirdly, when I was 25, I did have a bout of depression um, right huh, after okay. I got elected to the state Senate. It was right. just four or five months. And, and, and what I want people to understand is there's, there's feeling down and then there's depression. Right. There's being stressed and then there's anxiety. And in both instances, they are entirely different things. Did you assume you had the latter in both cases or the former, whatever the construction there was? Yeah. Like, did well, no, no. I didn't know what was going on. So I just sort of waited for it to go away <laughs> when, yeah. when I was 25 and the depression hit. But it's like all of a sudden when you have that level of nothing interested me. And my life was really good at that point. I was a 25-year-old state senator, you know. What I'd wanted to do, I'd managed to do, but for some reason, this depression just took me over for like four or five months. I didn't do anything about it, and you know, it just went away. And then in 2005 was when, you know, and I was stressed at that point. My kids were young; I was flying back and forth. You know, Congress was was a challenge, but you know, but that stress went from just you know the sort of rising and falling stress to existential fear. 24-7, heart going a million miles an hour, body tense, couldn't get to sleep, could barely eat. And it didn't have a specific cause, okay? It wasn't, you know, my wife just told me that she might have cancer, okay? Or, you know, it, yeah. there was no one specific was no trauma. thing that was going on. Right. It just, it just all of a sudden crossed this line from being stress to being anxiety that I, I just couldn't control. 
And that journey, the the professional help journey you that you write about, I think a lot of people will relate to in terms of going from doctor to doctor, from psychologist or psychiatrist uh, to, to psychiatrist, trying different combinations of, of drugs uh, and therapies and, uh, you know, brands of meditation. And it was, I mean, a really long journey, years and years before you really yeah. sort of figured this out. I was keeping a list as I was going through through the book of the you know the different things that you tried from the SSRIs to the you know cognitive behavior therapy, transcendental meditation, um, other versions of, of psychotherapy. I, I wonder if you could sort of take us through that journey and uh, unpack that a, a, a little bit, and we can talk about some of the, the lessons you learned that might help people understand how to get help where you don't have to go through that kind of wrenching uh, process. Or, or, you know, maybe that maybe you had to, I, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe that was part of the, uh, part of what got you to the place you're at now. Could be. I mean, I, I'll, I'll sort of start at the end and work my way through it. There, there are three basic things that are important to mental health. And part of the challenge is, as I document, um, in my experience, doctors are not great at explaining things or listening to their patients. And I think, and I, and I say this in the book, part of it is because, you know, they've got a lot to learn in order to become doctors. And they're really, really smart people. All right. They got all this information bouncing around in their head. I think there's a lot of assumptions in there amongst the medical profession that the patient doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. But if you're going to suss out what's really going on with the person, you have to have that conversation. So that, that was challenging. But look, when it comes to mental health, the one piece that nobody told me, and I document this in the book until I saw this psychologist in late 2015 in between my second and my third hip surgery, is mental health starts with a baseline sense of self-worth. There's a lot of different ways to describe this. Um, the one that stuck with me was a, a healthy narcissism. And please understand, there is, there is an unhealthy narcissism, okay, as well. But what a healthy narcissism means is that you believe at your core in your own self-worth. You believe that you are sorry to be a little Buddhist here, worthy of love. Yeah. And the way my psychologist put it to me on my first visit to him in late 2015, after he had assessed this questionnaire that I filled out, is he said, you don't think you have a right to exist. That's what he said to me. And, and at the time, I thought this was idiotic. Okay. This guy didn't know what the hell he's talking. What do you mean? I don't think I have a right to exist. Um, you know, I'm a successful person. I'm confident, you know, most of the time. But what he meant was I never got that base level understanding that I have self-worth regardless of whether or not I'm good at anything. Okay. Cause my, in my mind, it was like, well, I have self-worth because I work hard. I'm a good father. I'm a good husband. I'm good at my job. That's not it. And if that's what you think gives you your self-worth, you are on a treadmill that's going to speed up until you run into the wall. Because every day, well, I got to prove myself, okay? If I say something wrong, if I do something wrong, it, no, you've got to get that and you have to be convinced of that baseline sense of self-worth. That's number one. Number two is you have to understand your history. 
And this is what psychotherapy yeah. does. Yeah. I quote this in the book, and it's the quote that finally made me understand psychotherapy. Even the psychologist who helped me didn't necessarily explain this stuff to me as clearly as he could have, or maybe I didn't understand it. I don't know. But about a year after seeing him, I was reading this fiction book that for some reason quoted psych- psychologists in the middle of it. And one of the quotes was, the purpose of psychotherapy is not to correct the past. It is to help the patient understand his history and to grieve for what he has lost. Because what I was trying to do throughout this whole process, I was trying to correct the past. I was going back through everything that I felt I had done wrong in my childhood with regard to my family and everything going forward. And I wanted to be told that it was was okay, that I didn't do anything wrong. When in fact, I just had to acknowledge it, okay, and, and make peace with it instead of trying to fix it. So you've got to go through and you got to figure out. And then the third big piece of this is you have to be honest with yourself about this stuff. Ultimately, that's one of the things that always just sort of nagged at me is I wanted to be better than my family. All right. And they died. And my brother, I don't even, I have no idea where he is. He said, all this miserable experience. And here I am just wanting to walk away from that and leave behind the people who are, it just made me feel like crap. And I never really acknowledged it and thought about it. And that was actually, for me, the most powerful moment in the whole book was when I wrote that sentence that, you know, at the end of the day, I just want to say I'm sorry. Okay. Nothing I can do about it, but I am sorry. So you've got to honestly, and it can be a relationship you have right now. It doesn't have to be from childhood. You know, maybe you're, you know, in a relationship that you're pretending is okay and really isn't. You know, and maybe there's solid reasons why you're pretending it's okay, but be honest with yourself about how you truly feel about your life and your relationships. So healthy narcissism, honest with yourself. That's two steps. I have a third one, but I've already gone on too long here. Wait, let's just unpack the, because the, the, you know, the epiphany that you have finally with this, uh, with this therapist, where you do some of these exercises where you're um, t- talking to your childhood self yes. and sort of and you come to this realization as you just pointed out of oh i can't fix this right. I, at this stage in my life i can't fix and that maybe you were attempting to do that you, you talk about repressing things from your childhood take us through some of what that was so that listeners un- understand the facts about your family and, and, and other things that really um you, you decided were very very critical and that you were repressing in some way well i think you know big part of it is as i mentioned i was adopted and i didn't know i was adopted until after both my parents had passed away i mean looking back on it it was really rather obvious but it never occurred to me to question it okay Um, yeah you don't have to be freud necessarily to think all right this guy you know there there, there's some issues there and a lot of your encounters with these uh therapists early on you were very dismissive whenever they tried to bring any of that up yeah yeah, no, because again, and I said this in the book, <clears throat> you know, they wanted to talk to me about how I felt, you know, when I found out I was adopted or what really should. And I was like, my anxiety <laughs> is here now today. I mean, and the, you didn't think it mattered. Yeah, it was 20 years ago, um, 30 years ago, because when my first bout of anxiety hit in 2005, I was 40. Um, then it was about eight years later when the, when the second one hit. But the key to that for me was this exercise that I went through with uh, like my sixth or seventh therapist that you know sort of took me back. You know, said, "Okay, you feel bad about how your childhood went. You feel bad about the fact that your parents, you know, died. You know, relatively unhappy that your family basically." 
basically was so dysfunctional um, and, you know, that that I didn't do anything about it, okay? That what, what could have I done to make this better? And we go through this exercise of going back and imagining that I'm talking with my parents right now today about that um, and discussing, okay, what should we do about this, basically? How, how could I, if given the opportunity, you know, how, how could I have dealt with this issue? And that's yeah. when, when I said I can't fix this. What I meant at that second, well, even if you took me back with everything that I knew, there's no way I could have, as you know, a 13, 14, 15 year old, figured out all the complex issues that were going on with my, with my, as it turns out, adoptive parents and with my older brother and all of that. And so it gave me this tremendous sense of relief that there was nothing I could have done. But that really misses the point in a very dangerous way. Okay. It implies that, you know, I could relax. There's nothing I could have done. But look, we're human. All right. We're going to screw up. There probably was something that I could have done. All right. You know, if I'd figured it out, nothing better. And I have to be okay with that. Okay. I have to be okay with the fact that I can't fix every situation that comes along. And that's where that basic sense of self-worth and and this what I the other thing I really struggled with, I'm a big personal accountability person. Right. You talk about this in terms of the balance between saying, oh, I can't fix it versus yeah. well, does that let people off the hook too much? Yeah. I could get into all manner of political trouble here in describing how I think these issues are playing out, you know, particularly in the Seattle King County area in terms of personal responsibility. You know, but I've seen so many people just breeze through life doing unbelievably irresponsible things, you know, and then acting like what you know and i just i just hate that okay I, I believe in responsibility so you're telling me that i ought to look at all the mistakes i made in my life and go not a problem but that's not what you're saying okay you can learn from your mistakes you can try to do better you can even hold yourself accountable for the mistakes you've made without treating those mistakes as some sort of conclusive proof that you don't have any worth as a human being all right. And that's a very difficult balance to learn for all of us. And that's what I mean when I say the story, you know, isn't unique. It's, these are things we right. all wrestle with. And if you don't try to wrestle with them, they can create underlying problems in your mental health. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about some of the different therapies and medications that you tried to deal with this and what your what lessons you, you draw from them. Um, when I first read the section where you, you, you were determined to get off any medication at all, whether it was SSRIs or clonopin uh, that you're taking for anxiety, I thought, oh, you know, is, is that a little controversial? Or, you know, is he being uh, too dismissive uh, about the, the use of, of these medications that so many people use? But you were determined to get off of them and you, you met with some doctors and therapists who wanted you to get, to get off of them. Talk about that a little bit um, since we these are so these are things that are so widely prescribed and some people do fine on them. Um, what was your decision there and how did they affect you? Yeah. And I, I will be careful here. I'm trying not to be too dismissive, dismissive, and I'm not dismissive at all, but I will make this statement and then qualify it. We way crazy over-prescribe medications for mental health issues in this country. I mean, 10-year-olds yeah. are being given SSRIs, all right? 
you go in and see someone and all of a sudden you're on ADHD medication. I believe, and this is the one biggest message that I have in this whole book, the human body has a capacity to heal that is so much greater than most people understand. Your mind and your body can get better if you understand them and you understand how to do that. And to a certain degree, in many, many instances, drugs simply make that process more difficult. Now, none of that is to say that there aren't instances where people do need to be on medication or instances where medications haven't helped people, okay? I'm just saying that it is the sort of mental health easy button um, that has really made the problem worse, in my estimation. And that is just really how I feel about it, that you, you do have a capacity to heal. And, and let's start with the benzodiazepines. They're anti-anxiety medication. Hmm. But the thing is, you can also work on the way you personally look at the world to change that in terms of your outlook, all right? In terms of, okay, your serotonin levels may be a little off. That's probably why I had that bout of depression is it sort of went off a little bit. But you can correct it not just chemically, but by changing the way you look at issues, and understanding that your brain is tricking you a little bit. Thoughts occur to you. And we've all had these situations where, you know, something you seem to be more anxious about something out of proportion to what it is and beyond all logic. I, I have a political story that illustrates this. It takes just a moment to explain. But in 1996, when I was running for Congress, I was running against a Republican incumbent. It was a big million dollar race, TV ads, nothing like we have today. Okay. It wasn't a $10 million race and there was no social media, uh, but it was a big deal and it was on TV and everything. And so the weekend before the election, I went doorbelling and somebody from my opponent had gone through the neighborhood before, before, right before me. So literally every door I walk up to had been leafleted and there was this brochure staring back at me saying, you know, Adam Smith is, you know, basically a horrible, terrible, awful human being. It was all the messages that they were using against me. And as I'm walking through this neighborhood, I started to feel just incredibly depressed because in my mind, everybody, everybody was reading this. Okay. Right. Right. Everybody like, was believing yeah. it, and I was going to lose because of right. this. And that this feeling, is like the spotlight effect on social media. Right. And I want to tell you that that feeling was as real as if a speeding car was coming at me and was going to hit me. I mean, that my, but it was. You were convinced of that. Right. But it was you, not logical. Okay, and which part of it wasn't logical that everyone was believed this about all you parts because of, of this one flyer? All parts yeah. of it were illogical. I mean, at that point, between the two of us, we'd spent about three million dollars on a whole bunch of different things in a hundred and fifty brochures in one neighborhood. Right. We're going to decide right. the thing seriously. Uh, okay, it's a great story because we have the exact analog today that everyone can now experience. You don't just have to be a exactly. politician who gets used to it. You see two mean tweets about yourself, and you think that that's the only thing on the internet that anyone knows about you. I think right. psychi psychologists call it the spotlight effect. Yeah, you're totally obsessed with this one thing that's out there about you because you're. We're all so self obsessed, but the entire the rest of the world doesn't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> hasn't seen those tweets, and in your case, right. never saw those brochures. And the thing is, the thing that's really important about this is you can train your brain. This is what meditation can help you with. 
to not have such a quick emotional reaction to things. And you can do that regardless of what your serotonin levels are and regardless of what drugs you're taking. And this- All right, tell us how you do that because this yeah. is, I think this is important for all of the type A, high stressed out DC people that listen to this podcast will we'll gain some insight from this. The number one most important thing is in meditation. And I had a mistaken idea of what meditation was as a starting point. I imagine, in, in, in some cases, meditation can be this, but I imagine meditation was this Buddhist thing where you're able to just basically leave your body and all of your earthly troubles behind. But what meditation really does help with is you don't have to eliminate all thoughts. What they tell you is, just don't chase those thoughts. Right. Do you? I know you dabbled in, in TM and, and other sort of breathing kinds of meditation. What's your What's your practice now? Yeah. Well, this is what I'm trying to get at. Basically, I don't sit down and meditate, but sometimes when I'm brushing my teeth or when I'm taking a shower or when I'm on my walk, I'll take two or three minutes and I'll do what they say. I will simply notice the world around me and the world inside of me, which is basically mm. I will listen to the sounds the, the smells, the senses, and the thoughts that are coming to me, and I will focus on none of them, okay? Hmm. A thought comes into my head, that's fine. It comes in, let it go. The phrase is notice it and let it go. You don't have to chase every thought that comes into your head. And once you realize that, it can calm you down incredibly over time. You know, I get asked the question all the time from my role in the Armed Services Committee, what keeps you up at night? I'm sure you you may have asked that question. I don't know. You, I don't know. you strike me as the type of reporter who probably doesn't ask that question. Uh, but but you know, you asked what keeps you up at night. And you know, my answer today: nothing keeps me up at night. And the reason nothing keeps me up at night is me staying up at night isn't going to do anything to make that problem any better. Okay, and I realize that I'm not going to solve everything. I used to think this. You know, I used to think, okay, if I just think through this, all right, I, I got to think through it. Once I think through it, okay, I got it. I'm good now. I can relax. Oh hell, there's another problem. I got to think through that one. No, it is okay to not solve every single thing at any time. The problems are going to be there when you get up in the morning, all right? Go to sleep, get up the next morning, and go back at it. You have to give yourself the space to say, I'm noticing the thought, I'm not chasing it. And that you can train your brain to do, and that helps you better handle those issues, not get depressed or anxious about them. When you look around Washington, D.C., when you look around Congress, how many stories like yours do you see? And, and how many folks do you see who you, you kind of, you know, you, you would wager have a, a similar mindset to the one that you had and sort of haven't had some of those uh, epiphanies that, that you've had? And I'm also curious if Washington sort of, you know, attracts a certain type, especially in, in how, old, how old are you, Congressman? I'm 58. And, and if there's maybe a generational divide, you know, with uh, some of the younger members and staffers about uh, these issues and how, and the openness and willingness to sort of talk about them and address some of these issues without any uh, stigma at all. Absolutely. There's a generational divide. Younger generation is becoming a lot more willing to talk about it. I mean, gosh, just in the, you know. Too much. They're too confessional. Well, actually, <laughs> let, me, let me address that issue because I think it's it's really important. You know, one of the big problems with mental health, which we all talk about, is the stigma. 
And I think yeah. that's absolutely true. Um, you know, there was a stigma against mental health and, and talking about it. We've gotten better at that. But the second piece of it is, if you're going to talk about it and be open about it, talk about it and open be open about it from the standpoint of let's get better, okay? Let's try to figure out how to be resilient and how to get past this. Let's not just talk about it. That's why it's funny. I'm just, this is just now occurring to me. A whole lot of people have told me, what I think you said words to the effect at the start of this, you know, is it's kind of like courageous of me to to talk about this openly and and publicly that it's you know it's a brave thing to do. I don't think about it that that way. I just don't. Okay, hmm. I, I'm just you know I, I think about it in the same way. It's not brave of me. I don't think to have a discussion about what you know healthcare policy should be or what you know what our policy towards China should be. Okay, this is a conversation to my mind about how we figure out how to get better. And to the extent that mental health just becomes one more voyeuristic thing that we're deciding to do as a society, you know, like the Kardashians and marriage, I don't know, um, you know, that, that's not helpful. That yeah. worries me. All right. Because that's it, not- it, it's almost like you're it's like sort of performative. Exactly. What's the state of your pain, both your physical pain and mental health issues now? It's all good. I mean, I'm, I'm truthfully as healthy as I've ever been. Yeah. In terms of the mental health side, that I kind of figured out. And the main intervention I do there is what I said, is just have this understanding that A, I can't fix everything and B, that's okay. If there was one takeaway from this book that you want your fellow members of Congress to, to hear, what would it be? And then maybe we can just end with, with one thing you want people in Washington, and especially your, your fellow congressmen, to take away from your experiences that you wrote about. The one message is mental health is a problem that we can address better than we're currently addressing it. As I said earlier, there's a lot of message out there about how mental health is a huge crisis and this huge problem and it's stigmatized and no one's paying attention to it. And we need to pay more attention to it. And I, that message seems to be getting out there. The message I want to get out there, there are some pretty straightforward ways that we can actually help people, that, that people can get better. And to your point, not just how can we make sure that we have you see a therapist for the rest of your life, but how can we get you on the path to being better in the mental health. The only thing I would cheat and add is that if we do that, I think we'll be surprised at how much easier all of the other problems that we face as a society are to address. Very, very well said. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. You know, I'm not just saying this, but I did genuinely enjoy the book. And, you know, most books by politicians suck. And I have the, I've, I, I read all of these, uh, especially by presidential candidates. If you, were, if you were running for president, your, your book would probably suck too. Yes, I, I'm sure that's true. Yes. <laughs> but this was um, a delight to read and uh, I, I, I learned a lot. And I, you know, I, I can say that without feeling partisan in any way because there's nothing, you know, there's literally nothing partisan uh, in this book. And so it was. It was refreshing to read by a member of Congress. And you're a good writer, too. Oh, but I know that you were the editor of your uh, high school newspaper and almost <laughs> went to journalism. Right. So uh, thanks for doing this. Appreciate the, appreciate the conversation. Thanks, Ryan. Great to see you. Appreciate the chance. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Thanks to Joe Dopkin for the editing help this week. 
Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.